Hello and welcome to the JS Bach Files, episode 38. I'm Terence O'Grady and today we're going to talk about three works for keyboard. Bach's Italian Concerto, BWV 971, originally titled Concerto After the Italian Taste, and his French Overture, BWV 831, originally titled Overture in the French Style for Harpsichord with Two Manuals, both published in 1735 in the collection known as Clavier Übung II or Clavier Practice II. We'll also take a quick look at the Fantasy BWV 906. Bach's Italian Concerto, also written for two-manual harpsichord to allow for dynamic contrast, is one of his best-known works for keyboard, and perhaps his most famous example of adapting the form and stylistic principles of the Italian Concerto to his own keyboard works. But it is, of course, far from his only keyboard work to do this, as we've seen in several previous episodes. And Bach's preparation for such an undertaking was ample, including a series of keyboard transcriptions of several Italian concertos made for his students, at least as early as his time at Weimar. So there's no question that Bach well understood and appreciated the Italian concerto style, which is made clear from the exuberance which fills this Italian concerto. A number of commentators have made the point that the work employed Vivaldi's solo concerto style as a model, and that the opening theme could well have been composed by Vivaldi, beginning as it does with a relatively short four-bar phrase, quite clear in its harmonic implications, alternating between tonic and subdominant chords, which is then clipped off and then repeated, starting up a fifth on the dominant. This is true, of course, but the theme is not without possible Bachian overtones as well. The offbeat beginning, echoed by the short, long, short syncopation of the top voice in the third measure, is every bit as much Bach as it is Vivaldi. Let's hear the first eight bars of the opening ritonello. As the second part of the theme is introduced in measure 9, beginning with a 3 16th note upbeat in measure 8, we encounter another syncopation and an ascending leap of a minor 6th, which reverses the descending minor 6th interval that we heard in the opening measure. We also hear a clear dominant 7th chord for the first time, one that resolves to tonic in the second measure. Melodically, the second measure of this phrase begins much like the first, but continues on to an undulating scale pattern that soon rises up to introduce the next two-measure phrase, which not surprisingly duplicates the first, this time of a fourth. Here are those two phrases starting at measure 9. Right at the end of my excerpt, you heard the beginning of the next part of the Ritornello, a new idea, sort of a narrow little curl motive that is repeated twice, each time down a step. This new motive starts on the dissonant seventh of a secondary dominant chord, and tells us that, at least for the moment, we're heading away from F major as our home base, and toward C major, the key of the dominant. Once the new key is established, two new things happen. The right-hand part begins to repeat a triad-based figuration pattern, and the left hand, which I haven't mentioned to this point, takes over the primary melodic content, such as it is, 
really little more than ascending scale fragments leading into descending triadic figures. Here's an excerpt starting with what I referred to earlier as the curl motive and finishing through to the end of the Riccinello, which arrives back in the original tonic of F major. With the opening Ritonello having come to a conclusive close, we now expect the first solo section, and that's exactly what we hear. Bach makes it clear in part by the use of contrasting dynamics, something that naturally requires a two-manual harpsichord. The left hand, marked piano, provides for the most part repeated eighth-note block chords to represent the relatively subdued orchestral accompaniment, while the right hand, marked forte, provides the solo part. Predictably, it's quite active rhythmically, and except for some references to the ties across strong beats heard in the opening Riccinello, it goes off largely along its own path. Obviously, there are a lot of repeated ideas here, with sequences abounding, often unfolding in two-measure units, and employing rapid little 30-second note flourishes along the way. Tonally, this opening solo section is conservative, following in its general scheme the same plan in place for the opening ritonello, alternations of tonic and subdominant chords, and ultimately moving towards C major, where this time the section comes to an end and the second Ritornello begins. The same basic thematic ideas are intact in the new Ritornello, along with a few new ones, but there are some interesting modifications made to the original ideas. For example, the first eighth note of the syncopated figure introduced in bar 3 in the original Ritornello has been replaced by two sixteenths, increasing the sense of momentum just a bit. And more importantly, the syncopated figures that occur later in the Ritornello starting at bar 9, have been almost completely recontextualized and now interlocked with a new, more complex bass part. Here, for example, is a simplified version of measures 9 through 12 in the original Ritonello. Here's the comparable section in the second Ritonello. Not only is the comparable passage in the second Ritornello more complex, but it also reveals a new descending line operating on two levels at once. These are just the sort of variations that might be more readily associated with Bach than with Vivaldi. The second Ritornello is also, not surprisingly, more unstable tonally, setting up a modulation first to A minor and then to D minor, not heard in the original Ritornello. 
Here's a performance of the second ritonello, which concludes with a cadence on D minor. The second solo section begins with the same motive that began the first and repeats it three times, with an added trill and a new tail, before moving on to new ideas, some of which resemble those from the Ritonello. The soloist actually quotes from the opening bars of the Ritonello at one point, where the original key of D minor has given way to B flat major, and then proceeds to develop the fourth bar of that theme for a while before breaking into a series of sustained trills against sequentially repeated patterns of sixteenth notes in the left hand. Here's an excerpt from the second solo section. An abbreviated Ritonello sneaks back in again in F major before the next solo section again takes control, bringing back several ideas from the first, now of course sounding rather different in the key of F major. But no further modulation is in Bach's plans, and soon the final Ritonello enters, very much like the first, although without the modulation to the dominant, and the movement comes to a close. The next movement is a Vivaldi-esque andante, where the left hand, in emulation of an orchestral introduction, begins by establishing the three-measure chord pattern that dominates throughout, while adapting to new harmonic and tonal circumstances along the way. Harmonically, it's a fairly simple pattern, beginning with an opening tonic D minor chord, followed by two almost ominous-sounding repetitions of the tonic note an octave lower. We then move by means of an ascending scale fragment doubled in thirds toward a G minor chord, the subdominant in the key, again followed by the repeated tonic Ds in the lower range. A similar scale fragment carries us into a leading tone diminished chord, which creates a slightly sinister degree of tension against the repeated tonic Ds that follow it.
The melody of which you just heard the opening bars enters in measure four and shows all the stylistic indicators of an impassioned violin solo, at times attacking phrases with mordants and tumbling downward in sixteenth notes, only to ascend quickly to greater heights. The melody unfolds mostly in sixteenths and thirty-second notes in a seemingly improvisatory flow with relatively little direct repetition, although some motives do repeat in new contexts. Suspensions and accented nonharmonic tones abound, as you might expect in an emotionally laden melody such as this one, and certain syncopated devices do recur on a fairly regular basis. Modulations occur, of course, most notably to the relative major of F. Here's an excerpt where a passage in F major yields back to the original key of D minor, leading, after a couple of bars, to some of the many across-the-beat syncopations that characterize the movement. While the passionate intensity of the movement clearly evokes some of Vivaldi's minor key slow movements, the intricacy of the motivic interrelationships which Bach displays here clearly surpass its model. Movement 3, back in F major, in alla breve cut time, and Mark Presto, is famous for its energy and unrelenting sense of momentum. The first measure of the theme begins forte, with a distinctive syncopated rhythmic figure of quarter-half followed by two-eighths, and an equally distinctive octave drop in the first two notes. Then the momentum surges ahead with a rapidly ascending scale line, peaking with a series of stout block chords, as the phrase ends on the dominant. It's quite an ear-catching opening, which we'll call Ritonello One. The texture shifts for the next four-measure thematic idea, starting back on the tonic chord and featuring two interlocking layers, one unfolding in half notes, the other in descending eighth-note fragments, starting on different pitch levels in a sequential pattern, while the octave drop motive now switches to the left-hand bass line, reinforcing the same sequential pattern. The harmonic rhythm is about the same here. The chords change every two beats, but things seem to move faster. We'll call this Ritonello II. Following Ritonello II, you heard a closing four-measure phrase based on a new repeating idea, this time an ascending pattern consisting of three scale-wise steps followed by an ascending leap. We hear this idea, or a close variant of it, five times in four measures, 
as the entire 12-bar section closes on a dominant. We'll call these last four bars Ritornello 3, but the idea is never actually used independently of the other two. The entire thematic statement then repeats, Ritornello 1 exactly as before, and Ritornello 2 in a new variant, still featuring two interlocking parts in the right hand, but with the strongest melodic movement now focused in the top voice as the part below it repeats a single offbeat motive against it. This new variant repeats its initial two-bar phrase and then extends the idea, complete with interlocking parts, down the scale, heading toward the tonic note and the solid cadence progression that ends the section. Here is the varied repeat of the opening 12-bar statement. From there we go to the first solo section, marked by softer dynamics in the right-hand solo part and a new thematic idea which starts off with a rather distinctive gesture, the leap of a tenth from the end of the first measure to the start of the second, before lapsing into a more conventional ascending figuration pattern in eighth notes. Here is a simplified example. This four-bar theme is now handed to the orchestra, that is, the left hand, while the right hand takes over the left-hand accompaniment up an octave. Then the right-hand soloist takes over the primary activity again with an extended, sequentially-based figuration pattern, which also features some prominent ascending leaps from time to time against repeated motives in the left hand. To this point, we've stayed securely in F major, but now the new sequentially-based passage starts to direct us towards C major. Here is a simplified example of some of it. The initial four-bar solo theme does return in modified form in the orchestra, that is, the left hand, and the texture gets a bit more complicated by the addition of a sustained voice applied on top of the texture from time to time. Also, the left hand rhythm picks up its level of activity, moving from largely quarter notes mixed with eighths to all eighth notes, so the listener knows that something is up, as a new sequence speeds us toward our destination. And that something is, naturally, the return of the Ritonello theme, now solidly in C major, which has been so long in the preparation. It's in a shorter version this time, based on the repeat of the original Ritonello theme rather than its initial appearance. Then, quickly, we're back to another solo section, based initially on triadic arpeggio patterns and again sequentially organized, depositing us briefly in B-flat major. Eventually, the pattern grows more complex, even incorporating a few unusual augmented second intervals and some tension-producing diminished seventh chord sonorities as we head to D minor. Soon, the orchestra interrupts with a variant of the original Ritonello now in D minor, the original theme in the left hand and almost overwhelmed by the continuing eighth note flow in the right. And, of course, sounding much more intense in this new context and new key. 
we'll hear an excerpt from the beginning of the first solo section through the return of the ritonello in C major, the next solo section, and the beginning of the modified third ritonello in D minor. As we continue on, the opening bars of the Ritornello theme flash before our ears in different keys, a fairly complete version in A minor, along with references to the original solo section as well. But while these themes appear and transform in an almost kaleidoscopic way, we're mostly aware of the driving intensity as the texture once again becomes more complex. When we head back to F major, the texture simplifies somewhat again. But soon, Bach is building up an impressive sonorous effect with a repeated sequential figure low in the left-hand range, right before we hear the final return of the Ritornello theme, slightly disguised initially, but on the repeat, returning in all its glory. It's a wonderful conclusion to a striking work. Not Bach's most complex, perhaps, although the finale builds up some formidable textures, but replete with memorable, distinctive melodies and with a formal profile that's easy to grasp and very satisfying. We'll turn now to the French Overture, BWV 831, a work in 11 movements based on a traditional French dance suite with the overture taking the place of the more typical Allemande movement. An earlier version of this work was composed in C minor, but Bach switched the key to B minor 
and made some minor alterations when preparing the work for publication along with the Italian concerto. The first movement shows many of the style characteristics associated with the typical orchestral version of the French overture. The original tempo is not indicated, but assumed to be relatively slow with a ceremonial dignity. The texture is full and abounding in ornamentation, with the right-hand melody proceeding somewhat unevenly, fast-moving motives alternating with broader chords of longer duration and the left hand frequently characterized by the dotted rhythm figures for which the style is known. Here is the beginning of the first section. After the entire first section repeats, we encounter in typical French overture fashion a faster fugal section. The meter shifts from duple to 6-8, and the subject is a distinctive blend of ascending triadic motives and darting scale-based passages. Although the first section had closed on F-sharp major, B minor is established quickly here. But as the imitative answers pile up, we begin to modulate moving first to D major via sequential processes. As in the Italian concerto, some dynamic changes are indicated, piano to forte and back again, once again requiring a two-manual harpsichord. Here is the first part of the fugal section. After the fugue, we end up back in B minor, where a new and even more embroidered version of the opening theme returns, equipped now with new modulations along the way, and concluding this time on the tonic. The courant that follows in 3-2 meter is thickly scored, with the left hand dipping low in the harpsichord range on a regular basis with reiterations of the tonic note that serve as a pedal for the first two and a half measures, creating some interesting dissonances above it. The large number of idiomatic ornaments, such as Morton's dissonant grace notes and trills, do tend to obscure the line somewhat of what is actually a very effective theme. The key shifts temporarily to A major in the second four-bar phrase, while the third makes its way first to F-sharp minor and then to F-sharp major, the expected key of the dominant. Here is the first 12-bar section. Thank you. 
we have a number of movements to comment upon in a somewhat limited amount of time, so we're going to move on now to the first gavat. It's in duple meter with an attractive melody. The first phrase features a somewhat unexpected deceptive cadence in the third bar, and the second four-bar phrase begins with a repetition of the opening motive, but picks up the momentum as it goes on with the addition of descending 16th note scale fragments. Here is the first eight-measure section. Skipping the second cavat, we pause briefly on the two passepieds, the first of which is brought back with a di capo marking after the second is played. Both are in 3-8 and are relatively short movements featuring lively tunes, especially the first. Typical of the style, the first of two sections, both repeated, ends on the dominant, and the second somewhat longer section, starting up again on the tonic, presents a variant of the first melodic statement while touching lightly on other key areas. The final eight bars of the second section recap the entire first section to create a rounded binary form. A stately sarabande in 3-4 is next. As we proceed through it, the active, mostly four-part texture and suspended dissonances keep us slightly on edge, although the movement is well-integrated motivically and perfectly logical in its unfolding. Here is just the first section. Two attractive bourrées follow, the first in particular well known for often being included in keyboard collections designed for beginning or intermediate piano students. It's fairly simple technically, and the texture is limited to two parts throughout, but the melody has a distinctive opening gesture and accumulates momentum very effectively as it proceeds.
The first part of the jig that follows, in 6-8 time, is also restricted to just a two-part texture and exploits the typical jig-like rhythmic motive of dotted eighth, sixteenth, eighth, often decorated with a mordant, with remarkable persistence. Bach does, however, toss in a few brief 32nd note scale runs just when we might sense that this characteristic dotted rhythm is getting a bit too predictable. Here is the first section. The last movement is an echo. Although it is not an obvious variant of the previous movement, it does employ persistently repeated rhythms in an analogous manner, this time a very typically Bachian rhythmic motive of an eighth followed by two sixteenths, often placed back to back to back in two-four meter. What is clearly echoed are motives, or close variants of motives, heard soft and then loud the contrast sometimes playing out within the same measure and sometimes over a span of four or more measures. Here is the first section. Bach's French overture has never achieved quite the popularity of his more consistently dynamic Italian concerto. But all of the movements demonstrate creative solutions to the challenge of adapting the French orchestral style to the keyboard, and some of them show a great deal of vitality while doing so. The final work we're going to look at for this episode is BWV 906 the Fantasia and Unfinished Fugue in C minor. It's an earlier work, how early is a matter for debate, but as Wolf has pointed out, Bach thought well enough of the Fantasia to make two autographed fair copies in the late 1730s. Wolf has also suggested that the Fantasia is Bach's most Scarlatian piece, and for good reason. It presents a dazzling array of brilliant keyboard gestures, some of the most notable of which are based on rapid arpeggio figures and rapidly repeated notes. And it features relatively little of the sophisticated linear contrapuntal development which we so typically associate with Bach. Here are the first four measures. The first three measures all share the same basic shape. In bar one, the plunging 16th note triplet figure outlining the tonic chord, 
pops back up immediately to establish a dominant chord on the second half of B3, while in the meantime, the left hand responds with its own 16th note triplet figure in descending steps. But as you heard, the elaborated dominant 7th chord never resolves to the tonic. Instead, the second measure employs the same basic pattern to evade the expected cadence on tonic with a surprising cadence on F major, the major subdominant, on the second half of B3. The third measure temporarily restores the tonal logic with a leading tone diminished chord that resolves back to the original tonic, and the fourth measure returns us to dominant. The next three bars come close to recreating the first three but with the rapid arpeggio motion now ascending and switched to the left hand. This occurs against new, often chromatically inflected, triplet swirls in the right hand. But while the melodic details may have changed, the basic harmonic structure hasn't, echoing the first three measures. Here then are the next three measures, measures five through seven. We've paused at measure 7 because it is at that point that we experience a substantial change in the musical continuity, a bit of which you heard at the end of that excerpt with the rapid reiterations of the diminished 7th chord. It's not an harmonic disruption, not yet. The chord simply points us back to the dominant. But the rapidly reiterated notes of the diminished chord signal that a new section is upon us one marked by brilliant hand-crossing keyboard effects and a new tonal orientation as we head to E-flat major. And then, after some surprising chromatic maneuvers, to G major to conclude the first section. Here's an excerpt from the beginning of this new passage to the end of the section. The second section begins in G minor by invoking a more elaborate version of the opening bars of the first, the descending triplets occurring first in the right hand but after two measures now answered in the left. As we proceed, the sinuous chromatic movement in both voices, now constantly responding to and echoing each other, becomes extensive. The opening thematic material eventually returns in something like its original form and in C minor, but is soon replaced by a slew of similar 16th note triplets, all leading with non-harmonic tones and all making their way down a series of chords without creating a particularly clear sense of tonality. But in the end, C minor solidifies and we race to the final cadence. Here is the second section.
The fact that the accompanying fugue was never completed has not generally been attributed to any specific circumstances, but there is general agreement that it's a shame that Bach never had the opportunity or inclination to do so. It's a remarkable piece, or more accurately, a remarkable fragment. Here's the beginning of it. It's in C minor, but it's quite a while before that becomes crystal clear, due largely to the extensive chromaticism ever surging upward in the three-measure subject. And the matter is not much clarified when the first fugal answer comes in in the alto voice, and the soprano line continues on with a countersubject against it. There are some insinuated cadences on C minor along the way, and my stopping point was a relatively clear cadence in G minor, although Bach is almost immediately on the move right after that cadence. It is not the most chromatic piece Bach ever composed, but it is certainly near the top of that list. We've looked at three very different works for keyboard in this episode, all of them well represented in recordings, if less so in live performances in the case of the last two and all highly creative examples of their kind. Our next episode will be part one of two, examining Bach's St. Matthew Passion, surely one of the greatest and most monumental sacred choral works in history. ¶¶